Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Star Trek History. Because what we have is the first episode that came live after Nemesis. Um, I've talked about Nemesis, how awful Nemesis is several times. How I consider it to be the worst of the Star Trek films and just total garbage in general. Obviously, this doesn't really mean anything, but this is going to be relevant. I just want to drop these figures now before I forget them. I will look these up later when it becomes relevant more so, because... Well, because production's a weird thing. If you watched my cover of the Disney Renaissance films, you'll notice that I was talking about films that hadn't come out yet and wouldn't for years, and had already come out years ago, because production cycles overlap on each other constantly, right? And I had to do some math about that, because I don't have exact dates, but let, let's get back to the thing that's relevant for this episode, because this episode came out after Nemesis came out. That's relevant, because that means Nemesis' sales figures were already starting to come in, and this episode wouldn't be affected by that at all, because by the time they were working on this episode, they were near as I could tell working on the... Uh, oh, I wrote it down. Hang on. They were working on an episode we'll be covering next year, The Crossing. That's it. I wanted to say The Crossover, but that was wrong. I, I That's kind of an estimate. Uh, the Crossing is an episode that went live in April, by contrast, which is several months later. But again, that's probably the episode, based on my own findings, which is not exact, because I don't have exact timing, uh, that's the episode they were working on when Nemesis went live. That'll be relevant when we get there. But again, I want to give you these factoids. Uh, Nemesis made $7 million net. I'm going to be using net figures because that matters. So you're probably thinking, wow, that's that's a bunch of money. And I'm, sh I'm sure at least some of you are thinking that because I shared that figure with a few other people and they were like, dang, that's decent figures. And I was like, no. No. Um, Insurrection made $54 million. Star Trek Generations made 83 Star Trek for Contact, First Contact made 101. All of this is net, and considering worldwide. Yeah, Nemesis bombed really, really badly. In fact, it's frankly astonishing that it managed to get its own budget back. Its budget was reduced after Insurrection 2. That's relevant because something I've been talking about a lot is how the budget wrangling has just been going back and forth under the hood for Star Trek in general at this point in history. Nemesis was another part of that, and Enterprise has been getting hit with that constantly. So, even though the budgets were up, the budgets were also down, which leads to things like this episode, where we have mostly uh, special effects shots that have nothing to do with FX shots. I'm using the wrong terminology, so let me try this again. If you have an external shot of the ship, there's, you know, in the distance, that's completely different from having a crew member suddenly morph into an alien. Doing those kind of shots uh, where you combine camera work and CGI work is a completely different type of process from just having some CGI on the screen, right? Like, duh. Which is more expensive, which is more difficult, that gets down to an interesting question. But the long and the short of it is this episode was much leaner on the budget. So even though we have the big storm and the ship being affected by it, and we have multiple guest stars, this was a fairly cheap episode to produce compared to most of the other ones they've done recently. Funnily enough, the last episode was pretty cheap to produce, too. This is despite the fact that we have these new sets, the nacelle set, the catwalk, as, as aforementioned. Just something to keep in mind, because the behind-the-scenes of Enterprise is actually fascinating. Because, and I've said this before, and I'll say this again, 
I firmly and fully believe this would actually be a really good show. Possibly one of the best in the franchise, if not for the behind-the-scenes issues which were constantly chopping it off at the knees. And to continue the analogy for a moment, imagine you're walking along, you know, trying to, to, trying to run a race, and someone is just racing behind you, whacking you in the knees over and over and over and over again. That's Enterprise. Not, the Enterprise is the one running the race. <laughs> uh, so this is, episode was written by Sussman and Phyllis Strong. Good team. They do some good work. And we have some cool stuff here. Uh, this is a perfect example of the cloud effect, by the way. So we have this warp storm. No Warhammer 40k reference intended. Where this storm is light, six light years across, which is gargantuan. And is also something that is moving at warp, sufficiently fast that warp 5 is not fast enough to stay ahead of it. That is ludicrously fast in terms of spatial phenomenon. Now, I don't actually know, you know, stellar cartography well enough to really comment on this, but I look at that and I think, really? This thing also nukes and destroys some biological life within its field, and is also dangerous and damaging in general. Now, I know space is big, but a six-light-year-wide storm that's moving at a few begrillion times the speed of light feels like the kind of thing that would be a major issue. You know, in fairness, we did. there is a reference to another storm like this a century before, which destroyed a Vulcan ship, but honestly, that's lowballing it. I mean, we could have found a planet that used to have a thriving population on it, which is all dead because that planet happened to encompass a six-light-year radius. Or three-light-year radius, you know? Anyways, so that's kind of dumb. Uh, then we have the fact that we can't bypass it in any direction, which means it has to be basically a giant uh, sphere, with, roughly, which is six light-years in diameter, which is okay. That's not what we're shown, of course, but that's what we have to presume. All right. And honestly, I just, I, I really want to pause and comment on how nonsensical this all feels because it's in service of what I feel is an actually decent episode. At first, I was just kind of, eh, and I want to explain why. See, the first third of the episode is prep work. Now, you're probably thinking, what do you mean? I mean, the first third of the episode, the first 13, 14 minutes, is just entirely devoted towards them looking at the storm, prepping for the storm, moving stuff for the storm, moving for stuff for the storm, moving stuff for the storm, and moving stuff for the storm, until finally they start shutting things down, shunting controls over, and moving into the catwalks and controlling the ship from there. Loosely, by the way. Credit where credit is due. The episode, other than the existence of the storm itself, which is just bleh, I'm actually completely down for this idea. They have to hunker in. They find someplace that's extra shielded, and frankly, the nacelles should be extra shielded in several ways, so that actually lines up. Side note, it's always kind of irritated me how the nacelles are treated as a weak point on a starship. Shouldn't they be, like, more capable of taking damage than other parts of the ship? That's how you go to warp. Anyways. <clears throat> so, I mean, it's, it's what helps project the warp bubble and a bunch of other things, but... Anyways, point being, so they have to hunker in, they hunker in there, they've got supplies, they've got the, the ability to resequence protein, they're going to put in a latrine, they work about, uh, you know, uh, quarters, latrine, oxygen, supplies, converter, all of this stuff is stuff they kind of run through. It's kind of a neat idea. 
What I was reminded most of is a video game called Frostpunk, which, if you're into any kind of science, uh, pseudo science fiction, steampunky, uh, so, uh, I can think of it, it's sim. It's a sim game, city city simulator, or uh, crisis management, or whatever you want to call that type of game. I highly recommend it. It's actually a really, really, really good game that I love the heck out of, and I hope to play the DLCs of someday. But the point I bring up this up for is because in that game. One of the scenarios you can play through also includes this horrific storm that there's nothing you can do about. Once it hits, you're screwed. You can't send out people. You can't operate normally. All you can do is hope you've prepared enough and hunkered in enough to deal with it. And there's still events happening and things are still going badly. But, you know, that's, that's the goal. Really fun game. And so that's that brings us to this episode and the idea of having to hunker in and deal with that. So I'm, I'm kind of down. It's it's engaging. It's interesting, and I'm I'm enjoying it despite the premise. So cloud effect. We also see a couple other things. First of all, Phlox mentions that you know, oh my God, we need to take care of this. We also find out that the fugitives are lying to us. I'll cut that back to that in a minute. Uh, they they like I said, they spend a third of the episode doing this. I will also say that this episode's actually already been done in Star Trek history. I know, I know, I know. It's, it's just about everything in Star Trek's been done at this point. But specifically, this concept has basically been done before in the episode one, uh, which is season four, episode 25 of Voyager, where the crew have to go into stasis pods that they just magically make happen out of nowhere, and Seven is the only one who is allowed to stay out and about for the duration of their trip through this light years long nebula with terrifying, damaging crap in it. So, okay. Funnily enough, I liked that episode, but that's because it was a seven vehicle and she's actually a good and interesting character when she's allowed to do something, so cool. This episode takes a completely different tint because after the preparation phase, the second, say, fourth to third of the episode is just everyone hunkered in. Now that probably sounds like boring fiction, and if it does, uh, you should probably stop watching the show, but... I found this section of the episode most engaging. In fact, it was my favorite part of the episode. Because it was all about them being hunkered in, how they deal with that. Uh, we have some people playing poker. We have these people playing crosswords. And there's this one woman. It's her second showing, recurring background characters. I mentioned that a few times. Um, Reed is dealing with the motion sickness of this situation because they don't have... The gravity's different, and the, the, the ship constantly shakes, so he's got less to stabilize himself. Um, we learned that there are 12 billion people on just one continent on Flock's homeworld, which is fascinating just to think about because it makes you wonder why. Why is that? Why is that a thing? Did they reach a point where their there's technology advanced so that they suddenly didn't have massive deaths constantly, but they never stopped being a society centered around constantly reproducing like rabbits? So all of a the sudden, their population just explodes and how that itself could be a dilemma their people are facing. Like, there's all sorts of interesting stuff here. How do you tell a people, okay, okay, stop having sex as much because we have a massive overpopulation problem. Like, that sounds kind of joking, but that's actually a real serious issue and one that, you know, uh, has been debated a few times in science fiction over the years. We find out... Uh, they, that, that apparently Enterprise does not have headphones. That one really bothered me a bit because, I mean, I don't know. You see these things? The ones I wear. Uh, this is what I wear whenever I'm streaming and, of course, whenever I'm watching anything. I actually do not own speakers that I can attach to the computer. 
I just have various forms of headphones. I've got like five or six pairs, most of which are just backups. But I bring this up because, hear me out for a second. Uh, I used to live with other people. I, I, I know, shocking. But this goes back to when I used to live with my mom. And I didn't want to bother her with my music or my games or my anything, so I invested in some headphones. They were cruder than this and cheaper. But I started doing that because of the simple courtesy of not wanting to, you know, have the music or the audio or whatever while they're just trying to exist. Now, that was my mother, but still, that's still basic roommate courtesy, right? The scene itself is amusing enough that I'm okay with it, but Archer's like, yeah, watching the show... Am I bothering you? Only slightly. Okay, so he gives up. And she's still working. And, of course, pads make noise because I don't actually know why. Am I bothering you? Only slightly. So she stops, too. That's actually kind of a neat little scene, but it does make me wonder why they don't have headphones. We know that people share quarters on this ship. You know, Daniels? Anyways. <clears throat> so, uh, then we cut to them uh, talking about how Paul needs to fraternize more, get to know the crew, try to interact with them on a social level. Now, my first thought was, Archer, and then smack. But as he approaches the idea, he doesn't do it in the most terrible way possible. Like, he could have been more diplomatic about it, but as we mentioned before, Archer is not good at his job. So instead, what we have is Paul actually considers the idea. Her main objection is, I don't know how to do that. And his response is, now's a good time to learn. Actually, now would be a terrible time to learn. Right now, people are more irritable, and their tolerances are less. So this is a terrible time to start learning how to socialize, in my opinion. Unless you prefer uh, trial by far, fire, of course. Point and take, uh, Reed is getting really irritable. He's getting tired of, of the, the food. By the way, Reed, Reed is getting tired of the food. Remember Reed, the guy who was like, I'm just going to eat whatever's put in front of me? It was a plot point for a whole episode. A subplot, but it's still... I mean, it was it was one-third of an episode's plot was dedicated to the fact that Reed was cool with just eating whatever. Oh, and also loves pineapple. Uh, anyways. <clears throat> so, uh, Reed's getting pissed off at this. Tucker's getting pissed off at the other guys. This whole thing's just leading to a mess. They're all frustrated. There's all this irritation. Uh, they are playing poker for rations. That's actually kind of cool, because we're always going to gamble. right? I, I don't know why gambling is such a thing in human society. I guess it's about stakes? I don't know. Anyways, they're playing poker for, for various food rations, which actually did tickle me. But the thing that really struck me is that to Paul, they don't overemphasize it. They could have made the whole episode about that, and that struck me because I feel like that's a bit of a missed opportunity. And I'm curious what you think on that. See, this then begins the actual plot of the episode. <gasps> pirates are going to steal the ship. Yeah, I know, I know. They call themselves a militia and they're formally ratified, but they're pirates. The only other word I could use here is privateer. So the pirates decide to jump in and say, we're going to take the ship. And then the episode pretty much immediately loses me. I have a grand total of two notes about the pirates. And that's a good half of the episode in two notes. Point one. I do like the fact that the, the guys who we rescued are actually deserters from the pirates. They're not actually part of the evil plan. It's sad that I have to even say that, but it's such a, it's such a thing, especially on Enterprise, where, hey, I'm the nice. No, I'm secretly evil is a thing, right? 
Second problem, uh, the second thing I'll have to mention here is Danny Goldring plays the captain, and you may have heard his voice before. He's done a fair amount of things here and there, but where I always hear his voice is actually from The Dark Knight. I'm not going to mention the scene. If, if you've heard his voice, you could probably connect it just by picturing it for a moment. He's, he's got that very distinct timber. Either way, <clears throat> so we find out that the pirates are trying to steal the ship, and they're trying to turn on the warp engines. Now, this was part of the good construction of this dilemma earlier. The warp storm itself is nonsense, but the idea that they have this... They're in the nacelles. The nacelles have to be off so that they can be in the nacelles was actually good construction of a dilemma, really. Because it means you can't go to warp while you're in the storm. And you, you, I'm saying this in the wrong order. You have to be in the nacelles to survive, and you can't go to warp because the nacelles would get heated up to 300 degrees, which, for those of you using Fahrenheit, is 572. A little hot. Now, I bring all this up because that explains why they're in there for a week. Otherwise, this would probably only take a day. Just warp through the storm. Boom. Problem is, this storm will kill you in, like, 20 minutes. So you, you can't actually do that. Good construction of a dilemma, if only the storm wasn't nonsense. The thing that really struck me, though, and, and it's just like, really, episode, is that, oh my god, they're turning on the engines. What's that mean? Well, it, uh, so, actually, hang on, rewind, rewind. I keep doing this in the wrong order, I apologize. First thing they do is they say, okay, well, we've got a few people out there, but we can only stand like 20-ish minutes of exposure, 22 minutes of exposure at the most, before we're screwed. Nice bit of continuity, by the way. When Tucker goes out and then comes back, he is refused to go out again because he's already been exposed. Thank you for having a brain episode. Too many times, Star Trek treats critical exposure as like HP in an RPG. You know, once you get to... You're, you're completely fine, you're completely fine, you're completely fine, until your HP hits zero, and then you're screwed. And radiation is treated like this a lot in Star Trek. Looking at you, Voyager. So the idea that he is already low on HP and we don't, don't want to get him lower actually makes more sense than, you know, ah, he's fine until he hits zero. So, good sense, Mike. So we only got 20 minutes of being out and about at the high end, and we need to rush out. We need to take the ship back in 20 minutes. Okay, what do we do? Uh, then... They successfully get the ship running, and it's like, oh, God, the nacelles are warming up. How long do we have until this cooks us? About 20 minutes. Wow, what an intriguing coincidence. So they go, and Archer plays his song and dance and threatens to blow up the ship, and then they get the ship back, and then they nearly destroy the ship, and then I yawn unintentionally. T'Pol uh, pays attention to the movie. That was a cool bit. You know, she's because she's paying attention. She's actually taking in the movie and comments on the plot to someone. I liked that. And then the coda happens, which is... I don't think I've ever had to comment on a coda quite like this, an outro. Because what happens is they're like, we're sorry, good luck. Then they leave, T'Pol comes in, that's everyone. And then the episode ends. It feels amazingly weird. It actually feels like they were short several minutes, so they just recorded several minutes of dead air, because that's what that is, in order to pad out the runtime. It felt so strange. I don't even know what to comment on it. it. I don't think I've ever seen a coda quite this empty before. I've seen bad codas, including coda, <laughs> voider. 
Before I cut off, I do have one thing to comment on. Uh, I want to talk about Chef. So, most Trek shows have some kind of a running gag. Some better than others. You know, Morn is probably my personal favorite. But there's Chef here on Enterprise. He's a really brilliant, amazing chef, which uh, Archer had to go and wrangle people. Actually, that's not part of canon. It was in the original script, but it was edited out of the script of Broken Bow. The idea was that he had to actually really fight and work to get Chef on board, and spent more time and effort and political connections getting Chef on board than he did getting the ship ready. Anyways, <clears throat> regardless... Chef not being visible or seen or talking is a recurring gag. So Chef walking around and handing out the things, and all you could see is, like, from the waist down. Okay, that's kind of neat. Here's where things get funny. So Chef is actually Dorothy Duder. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. She's actually someone who's been involved in Star Trek for a while, mostly as a caterer and a cook. And you see where this is going. Because anytime you see food... Because food has been kind of a big deal in Enterprise, which I like. It's a good way to keep things grounded... And give people a nice thing. Remember, the dinner scene is the regular scene here, as opposed to poker or whatever else. So, she's the one who's been making those meals. She's the one who's been designing that food and making it so that it looks good on TV or is you know, a specific type of taste so that they can eat it while doing their lines, that kind of a thing. That's her. So, she is chef. But, obviously, that's more from an out-of-character perspective. So, the guy, this gets even funnier, though. The guy they had walking through the catwalk is Richard Sarstedt. Now, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, too, and I apologize. That name probably doesn't sound familiar to you. He was one of the regular stand-ins for Jonathan Frakes on TNG. If you don't understand why that is amusing, I'll just leave it be. We'll get there uh, in about a year at this point. But for now, I'm going to cut off. I'll see you next time, guys.